Esther chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. It reads, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it in month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's law, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay you 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have the charge of the king's business, that, they, that it may be put into the king's treasuries. So, the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written in the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So if you were with us last week, you, you might remember where we left off. And where we left off was Mordecai, he's by the king's gate, right? He's just checking in on Esther to see how she's doing. And he overhears this plot of assassination against the king. King Ahasuerus, also known as King Xerxes in the Greek. And so he hears this plot against King Xerxes, and he lets it be known, right? He goes to Esther, hey, make sure the king hears about this. Mordecai saves Xerxes' life. It's a pretty big deal. It gets written down in their history books, okay, recorded. Mordecai was the one. He brought the information. He saves the king. And so now as we flip to chapter 3 and we begin reading, it says, after these days, the king honored 
and we're all expecting it to say Mordecai, right? That seems logical. He's the one you would honor. He's the one who just saved your life. He's the one who did this great thing. You think he deserves a little bit of recognition, you know, something, an attaboy, maybe some kind of prize or something. But it's not Mordecai who is honored. Because one thing that we know about King Xerxes at this point is he's a selfish guy. You know, he's self-consumed, not others consumed. He's self-concerned, not others concerned. He's good. Everything's fine. He forgets all about Mordecai and who is honored? Haman. Haman the Agagite. You know, you hear that, right? Haman the Agagite. The guy just sounds evil, you know? He kind of sounds like this is a bad dude. I don't know anything, but Agagite just sounds bad. He's got to be bad news. Uh, that's what we think. We don't even know what Agagite means, but that's kind of what we think. You understand, Jews like reading this or hearing this back then, when they hear Haman the Agagite, it's like terror running through their veins, okay? Because the Agagites, they're also the same as the Amalekites, if you're familiar with them or remember them from the Old Testament. These were like enemies of God's people. They were the first people to try to attack God's people, the Jews, and try to wipe them out and destroy them. They're the first ones to go after them. These are bad people. And so when they're hearing that it's Haman, an Agagite, the Agagite, this is not good news, right? Terror. There's fear. And this is the guy who's honored. And I mean, you read about how he's honored, right? He's, he's given a throne above all the other royal officials. And I mean, the guy gets a throne, you know, and everybody has to come by. And as they're coming by, they got to bow down before him and pay homage to him. I mean, this is how this guy's honored. It's how he's treated. And you know what? Everybody does. As they're walking by in front of this guy's throne, everybody's bowing down and paying homage to him. Everybody's doing it. Everybody except Mordecai. Mordecai just keeps on walking. And can you imagine, right, if you're there, and here's this guy, and everybody who comes by, they all bow down, pay homage to him. Oh, this guy, Haman, he's something. And then there's another guy, and he's just walking. He doesn't stop. He doesn't bow. There's nothing like that. You, you can imagine what's happening, right? Everybody's looking. What's he going to do? This guy over here, he's challenging you. He's disrespecting you. He's ignoring you. What are you going to do? It's in the mind of everybody there. Because Mordecai didn't just do this one day. It's not like one day, oh, he just forgets to bow or says, no, I'm not bowing today. No, it's day after day. It's every day. He's just refusing. He just keeps on going about his own business. And so the royal officials, they go to Mordecai, and they're talking to him and say, you're disobeying the king's edict. It's not just Haman you're disobeying. No, the guy who, like, thinks he's a god, who calls himself the king of kings, that guy, Xerxes, you're disobeying him. Why would you do that? And at this time, what happens? Mordecai, he plays the God card, right? He's, uh, now he pulls out his religious card. Well, I'm a Jew. He never bothered to say that before, you know? When the king's men were coming, they were getting all the pretty girls in uh, Persia to take him to the king. Uh, he doesn't pull it out there and say, you know, hey, me... My daughter Hadassah adopted that. We're Jewish. You probably won't want her. He doesn't pull out the God card then. Doesn't pull out his faith card then. No. What does he do? He keeps, hey, just tell them you're Esther. Maybe they'll think you're Persian. You know, it'll, it'll, it'll go well. Doesn't, this is the time where he decides he's going to make his stand. And why? Why does he pull it out then? Because he thinks, hey, I can get a religious exemption. You know, I'll, I'll be exempted. No problem. And things will be fine. What he doesn't realize is about to happen 
is because he pulls out his God card then, it's not just himself who's in trouble. He's now put the entire Jewish population living in Persia at risk because Haman's furious. Now you look at Haman, right? This guy seems like he's got it made, you know? He's got the king honoring him, giving him a throne above all the other thrones. Everybody's allowed just to come down and they're forced to bow down to this guy and pay homage to this guy. I mean, this is the kind of respect he has. You know, he's wealthy. He's able to offer 10,000 talents of silver. I mean, he's got it made. Except there's one guy, you know, one guy in all of Persia who doesn't want to bow down. And so what happens to Haman? He's filled with fury because of one guy. You know what? We can be like that too, can't we? We can obsess over the one negative thing in our life when maybe there's a whole lot of good going on. Instead of being thankful for all this good, the inclination of the human heart is to see something that's bad and just obsess over that. And then what happens? That one thing that's bad, it begins to color and stain all of that which is good because you're seeing life through the lens of what's wrong. And this is what's happening with Haman. But he's really not that different than we are because we live life much the same way a lot of times. We see life through the lens of what's wrong. And listen, in a sin-cursed world, there's always something wrong. The great thing about knowing the one true God is he gives joy in the midst of pain, you know. He gives peace in the midst of struggle. This is the power of our God. But we miss it when we obsess over the one thing that's wrong. And so this is what Haman's doing. He's obsessing over this one thing. Mordecai, you know, they're questioning him. Hey, why are you not bowing? He said, well, I'm a Jew. Uh, I may have forgotten to tell you that for the last 40 years, but, you know, I'm a Jew. And sometimes we can be a lot like Mordecai too, you know. And we can think, well, faith that's just a private thing, you know? I don't really want to tell anybody about it. It's just, you know, it's between me and God, whatever. But then something happens. Say, well, I need a religious exemption now. I got to pull out my God card now. And hey, hey, by the way, I'm, I'm a Christian. Oh, you're a Christian. I never knew that. Like, what kind of Christian are you? Well, I'm the hypocritical kind, you know? I just pull it out when I need it. And so this is one of those times. Now all of a sudden I'm really committed. And sometimes we can be like that, you know? We're not so different than Mordecai because what we find in Mordecai, yeah, he's been overlooked, but you know what? He's also an overlooker because here he is in Persia when he should be in Jerusalem. And we read about Mordecai and we don't read anything about him praying. We don't read anything about him studying the scriptures. We don't even read about him singing a song, anything like that. All all we see is him trying to keep his faith a secret until he thinks it's going to benefit him to tell people that he believes in the one true God. And so, Haman, he sees Mordecai, he's not bowing down, he's not paying homage, and he just can't let it go because he's obsessing over the one thing. And because of that, he's not just going to take it out on one man, he wants to take it out on all of Mordecai's people, all the Jewish people. And we read this, And we're rightly horrified by what's taking place, you know. Because we look at this and say, this is just wrong. The genocide of an entire people group because you're upset with one guy? That's wrong. 
But you know, we don't have the moral high ground as a nation. We can't look, well, I'm so glad that, you know, America, we progressed so much. We're not like these evil Persians. You realize we don't have the high ground, the moral high ground here. Because what do we do? Well, we have a genocide of the unborn, right? Pre-born babies in every single day. What happened? Babies are killed legally. Not wholly, but legally. It's the same thing as Persia. The people group is different, but it's the same. And so we must be very careful how we read the scriptures, that we don't come to them with this like self-righteous moral high ground where we say, oh, I'm so thankful that I'm better than the Persians. We, we got to be careful how we read the scriptures, that we don't make heroes out of Mordecai or out of Esther. There is only one who is good. There is only one who is righteous. There is one hero. There is the better king, the better savior, and that's Jesus. So we've got to be careful how we read the scriptures. Because the temptation in a story like Esther is to make Mordecai and Esther the heroes. But when you read carefully, there are no heroes. So, as we continue to read carefully, what we see is in the 12th year of King Xerxes' reign. So, if you remember from last week, he marries Esther in year 7 of his reign. So this is five years later. Um, what happens? Haman gets together with the guys, and they're casting lots, casting pur. That's what will lead to the Feast of Purim. We'll get there in a few weeks. But um, you see, these are very spiritual people, the Persians. They're not like godless atheists or anything. They're very spiritual people. But here's the thing. Spirituality, apart from the one true God, is very dangerous. Right? It's not a good thing. Spirituality, apart from the one true God, is a very dangerous thing. Paul, he would write and he would tell us, hey, our main battle, it's not against flesh and blood. It's against the unseen spiritual world. That's the main battle. It's a, so it's a very dangerous thing because what are these people doing? They're actually asking the spirit world, the demonic world, to inform them how they should make their decisions. And so they're casting lots, wanting the spirit to lead them, and... As they go through this, they decide, okay, this is the right time to approach Xerxes and to tell him the plan. And that's what they do. It falls on the 12th month. They wait till the 12th month. Haman goes and he tells Xerxes the plan. And he's really crafty with how he does it, you know. He says, hey, Xerxes, I don't know if you knew, but you got a group of people living in Persia? They're not assimilating into culture. You know, they're kind of doing their own thing. They're kind of disrespecting your laws and all this. Uh, it's not good for the kingdom. I tell you what, if you let me destroy them, annihilate them, just wipe them out, I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver because I want your kingdom just to be awesome, to, for people to focus on you and know how great you are. We can't have these disobedient, rebellious ones. It, have you noticed that as you go throughout the story, of Esther, how bad the advice is that King Xerxes gets. It's like everywhere you turn is bad advice after bad advice after bad advice, right? Chapter one, hey, you want to embarrass your wife and parade her in front of uh, all these guys, all these drunk guys? Like what, what's up with that? And then the people say, hey, she's the issue. You need to put an edict out there for all the women in all of Persia. That's what you need to do. And he's, oh, great. That's great advice. Yeah, we'll do that. And then chapter two, what happens? Oh, you seem kind of depressed, king. Seem kind of lonely. Here's what we need to do. We need to have a bachelor Persia contest and bring all the beautiful young women in Persia straight to you. That's what we'll do. 
Yeah, that's a great advice. We'll go with that. And now here, chapter three, what's happening? Oh, you got one guy who's not doing what he should do. And so everything gets blown up. And hey, King, you got a rebellious group of people. They don't want to assimilate in the culture. Why don't you just let me wipe them out for you? And what does Xerxes say? That's a great idea. Wipe them out. In fact, you don't even have to pay the money. Go ahead and keep the money, Haman. You're such a great servant. Go ahead, wipe them out. You know, Xerxes doesn't research anything. He doesn't look into anything. Anytime he gets this bad counsel, he just takes it and he goes with it. And here, here you have Xerxes with the Jewish people. He doesn't know the Jewish people, you know. He's never taken the time to get to know them. He doesn't love them. They're just numbers in his kingdom. Listen, anytime leaders operate in a way where they're not focused on the faces, they're just focused on the numbers, you're always in trouble. It's always going to go bad. And it doesn't matter what the context is. The context can be politics, government like this. The context can be business. The context can be ministry. But whenever the focus is on numbers and not faces, it's always going to end badly, right? Jesus, God, it's always the faces. It's always the people. You see this with Jesus, right? And just how there can be masses of people. And who does he focus on? The one. And he takes the time to get to know them and to hear their stories and have conversations with them. And we're told about a God in Scripture who loves each and every one of us, who knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows how many hairs are on our head even. He knows us. He cares about us. Why? Because we're not just numbers in his kingdom, right? Oh, man, I get to add another one to my kingdom. This is great. It's expanding. No, we're faces. We're people who he knows and who he loves. And we don't operate that way. You're always going to end up in trouble. This is how Xerxes is operating. And why is he operating that way? Well, he's heard some gossip. He's had someone say something. And this seems easy, seems self-protective. So he just kind of moves that way. See, listen, we read this story. And the temptation is to say, Haman's bad, Xerxes bad. Thank you, Lord, that I'm good. But you know what? What we need to say is, you know, I can be a lot like Haman. I can be a lot like Xerxes, you know, that things can be going great for me, but I can obsess over the one thing that's not, and it can begin to color everything else. I can be a lot like Xerxes, you know, I can just try to do what's best for me, not really investigate, just listen to the gossip and just go with it, rather than taking the time to really know. I don't want to be. But you know what I can be? And and the truth is, it's true for all of us. Apart from the grace of God, this is the inclination of every human heart. To be self-protective. To focus on what is bad, not on what is good. We're to set our minds on things above. You understand, the life of the Christian is radically different. It's different in how we orient our minds, how we orient our thinking. It's different in how we see others and value others above ourselves. It's radically different. But most people, they don't make decisions this way, right? They just make decisions to stay. What suits me? What's good for me? As Chris, I'm telling you, you've got to make decisions differently. If you don't have a basic grid for how you make decisions in your life, I'm telling you, you need one. And the grid, as I read the scriptures, it's actually very simple. And it's simply this. As I make decisions in life, I'm making decisions based on what is good for God's glory and what is good for the good of others. 
How is God going to get glory and what's good for others? That's the grid for making decisions. You make decisions based on God's glory and the good of others. And let me tell you something that is radically different from how the world makes decisions. It's radically different from how we made decisions before we knew Jesus. Because we tend to make decisions for our own glory and for our own good. That's the inclination of the human heart. So, you know, and since we don't make decisions this way, the result is a lot of broken stories, a lot of sin, a lot of things that are wrong. We see things that should not be. And so we come to the story of Esther and we want to make a hero out of it. We want to glamorize it. And so what we end up doing is almost whitewashing it, sanitizing it, right? We have a, a nice beauty talent contest or something. And that makes it more palatable. Now, understand what we're reading in Esther for the first three chapters is a bunch of stuff that should not be. None of this should be. It's all wrong. I just want to walk it through with you, okay? Just so you can see this. But the Jewish people are living in Persia. Why are they in Persia? Because generations prior, God's people disobeyed God's law. And he was patient with them. And he sent prophets to them. And he called them to repentance. But what did God's people do? We don't really want to repent, God. We want to go our own way, do our own thing. And so they're a rebellious, disobedient lot. And as a result of their continued rebellion and their continued disobedience, as a consequence and punishment for that sin, God has them exiled off by the Babylonians, now the land of Persia. This is why they're there. Because the sin of generations prior influenced and impacted the sin of few, or the people of future generations. And so they're in a place where they should not be. And then what happens after that? Well, God, he gets the Babylonians off the scene and the Persians come on the scene. King Cyrus, after the Jews had been in captivity, in bondage for 70 years, he gives an edict that the Jewish people are allowed to go home. They're allowed to return to Israel, to Jerusalem. And we read about many people who go back. You read about them in Ezra and Nehemiah. But in the book of Esther, we're reading about the disobedient ones, the rebellious ones. Because God had spoken through his prophet Isaiah and he had told his people, you need to go back, you need to return home. But these are the people who do not return home. They're the people who decide, you know what, life's kind of comfortable here in Persia. We'll just stay. And so we're, we're reading about people who are in a place where they should not be. Because they've disobeyed God. This should not be. One of the people we meet, Hadassah, Esther. She's an orphan. Her parents have died. This is tragic. This should not be. No child should have to experience the death of their parents and be orphaned. This should not be. And then, at the same time, we meet her Cousin Mordecai, who has adopted her and takes her in. And what does he say? Hey, don't tell anyone you believe in the one true God, all right? We'll call you Esther. We'll give you a nice Persian name. You can blend right in. This should not be. These are God's people. They should be proclaiming the one true God. 
Instead, they're trying to keep it a secret, trying to conceal. This should not be. At the same time, we meet King Xerxes. Xerxes, he's a guy who divorces his wife after he tries to embarrass her. And then he has his harem of women. He mistreats women. He's, this should not be. He should not abuse his power in this way. And who does he think he is, this king? He calls himself the king of kings. He thinks he's a god. He wants to be worshipped as a god. This should not be. Every time the king gets counsel as to what he ought to do, what does he get? He gets bad advice after bad advice after bad advice. It's all bad. This should not be. And then there's Esther, Hadassah, and she marries King Xerxes. You understand, this is a marriage that should not be. This is a believer in the one true God marrying a polytheistic polygamous pig. This should not be. And then there's Haman. Now, Haman shouldn't even be alive. Okay, follow me on this one. We meet him. Haman is an Agagite, the same people as the Amalekites. Mordecai, you remember Mordecai? We learned from chapter 2 that he was a Benjaminite. That is, from the line of Saul. Okay, if you go back, Saul was told by God to destroy the Amalekites, the Agagites. Saul doesn't. He allows them to live. God was righteous in wanting them destroyed because these people were attacking and harming and destroying his people. Now, Saul disobeys God. And so, because Mordecai's great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather did not destroy Haman's great-great-great-great-great-grandfather as he was supposed to do. Haman is on the scene. He should never even be there. This should not be. But he is there. And what does he want? Everyone to come and to bow down before him and to pay homage to him. He wants self-glorification. This should not be. One guy doesn't give him what he wants, and so he turns the frustration with one man into a plot of genocide against an entire people group. This should not be. He goes to Xerxes, tells Xerxes, hey, this would be good for your kingdom. Xerxes doesn't investigate because he doesn't really love his people. He hasn't really taken the time to get to know his people. It's all about him. This should not be. You understand, everything we read in Esther should not be. It's all wrong. It's wrong, it's wrong, it's all wrong. And you know what? It's not easy, it's not hard to look around our culture and to see what's wrong either, is it? And to see things that should not be. And sometimes you'll hear well-meaning Christians say something like, well, God is sovereign. You know, he's... Uh, he has a plan. It's all part of his plan. Or you'll hear, you know, God is sovereign. Everything happens for a reason. Listen, everything might happen for a reason, but it's not always a godly one. Something, sometimes really things happen for really evil, bad, sinful, wrong reasons. It's not always a godly reason. And a lot of this is not God's plan either. It was not like God was sitting up there in heaven and saying, you know what, here's my plan. I'm going to take this young 
woman who believes in the one true God and I want her to marry this evil king who's a polytheist, who's polygamous and all this. This is my plan for Queen Esther. No, this was a marriage that should not be. God doesn't just adjust his laws to fit the situation. God doesn't just say, okay, you know, my plan, I want you orphaned. That, that's what I'm going to do for you. you know, when you say things like, hey, it's all God's plan, you got to be very careful what you're talking about because the truth is there are rebellious people who are sinning against God's plan doing what is wrong, and it's all against God's plan. And you know what? We were part of that rebellious lot before he got a hold of us. Here's the thing. Not everything is God's plan, but God can use everything for his plan. And there is a world of difference in those two statements. Not everything is God's plan, but he can use everything for his plan. When you say everything is God's plan, then what are you doing? You're ascribing all the sin, everything is wrong to God, right? He's ultimately the mastermind behind all of this. And what have you just done? You've just compromised his goodness. You've just compromised his holiness. You've just compromised his righteousness. He's no longer any of those things because he becomes the author of sin. But here's the thing. God is so good and he is so mighty and he is so powerful that he's actually able to reach in to all of those areas that are wrong. And he's able to reach into a marriage that should not be a marriage between Esther and Xerxes. He's able to reach into the lives of orphans. He's able to reach into the lives of rebellious, disobedient people. And he can redeem it. And he can make it good. This is the majesty of our God. That he's able to work all things together for our good. For the people who know him. They're good. This is the goodness of our God. Understanding that is critical. Sometimes we see the brokenness in our culture, we see the brokenness, we say this is not how things should be. But we must be very careful that we don't ascribe it as God's plan. No. What's God's plan? To redeem all the sinful stuff that we've done. Now, the other temptation is this. We look at it, and we look at this story of Esther and what's going on and this plot of genocide, and say, God, why, why are you so silent? I mean, why don't you speak up? Why don't you at least send a prophet or, or something? You know, you got to do something. Your people are in trouble. And sometimes we look at our own lives too, don't we? We say, God, why are you so quiet right now? You seem so silent, so distant from me. I've got all this stuff going on, and I just want to know that you care, that you're here. You seem so silent, so distant. You know what? Sometimes... It's hard to see him in the moment. And so you have to look back at the past and to see his faithfulness in the past and it causes you to be able to trust in the present. Because here's the thing, the the Jews in Esther's day, they would have had no clue how God would work in this situation, right? It would just be panic because there's that date on the calendar and it's set in stone on this date, all the Jews in Persia are being round up and they're being annihilated and they're being destroyed. And you're just looking forward to that day thinking, we're toast. We're done for. How's God going to work? He seems so distant. He seems so quiet. What's going to happen? 
how, how do you have confidence? Well, you see how God has acted in the past. And we know, we have the benefit of knowing the whole story of Esther, and we, we know how they are saved. But that gives us confidence today, that when God seems silent in our own lives, he's still active. And that's what we have to trust, that when God seems silent, we trust that he's still active. Because the glimmer of hope that the Jewish people have is how God has acted in the past. How in the past, when his people were in trouble, God came through. And one of the ways um, is through the story of Passover, you know. It was a different time. It was a different kingdom, a different place. It wasn't uh, Persia, it was Egypt. A different king. It wasn't Pharaoh, or it wasn't Xerxes, it was Pharaoh. And at that time, God's people are in bondage. And God tells Moses that, hey, I'm sending the angel of death as one of the signs to Pharaoh to let my people go. And here's what's going to happen. The angel of death is going to come and he's going to go into every house and the oldest male in every house is going to die. But for my people, here's what needs to happen. You need to take the blood of a lamb and you need to smear it over the doorpost so you're covered by the blood of the lamb and then the angel of death will pass over that house. And so for centuries later, the Jewish people, they would celebrate this as just a reminder of God's faithfulness and protection of his people. And now here's Haman, all these years later, issuing this decree. He's not the first to want to destroy God's people. But just as God delivered his people from Egypt, he would deliver his people from Persia. And you know what? All of this in the story of Esther, it's pointing forward to Jesus. Because today, as God's people, we don't so much celebrate Passover. Why? Because on the eve of his death, what does Jesus do? He reinstitutes Passover. And so today we celebrate communion because it looks forward to Jesus. Because here's the thing, Jesus died a better death. You know, those Passover lambs, it took one lamb for the oldest member of one family to be saved temporarily from death on earth. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. His death is... Uh, provides for, ev- for people from every family who are covered by the blood of the Lamb, from an un- eternal death. See, as you go through the story of Esther, what you see is that Jesus, he's a better king. Jesus is a better savior. Jesus died a better death. It's all pointing to him. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that even when we can't sense your presence, that you are active. God, that even when you seem silent because we look at the, the mess in our own lives, the mess in our culture, the mess in the world, and we wonder where you are and we want you to speak and we want you to do something. God, we, we look in the past and we see you are faithful. And because of your faithfulness in the past, we know that you were faithful to us today. Help us to trust. God, we want to be a people who don't just pull out the religious card when it's comfortable or we think it's good for us. But God, we're people who just want everyone to know the glory and the majesty of our God. God, we want to praise you. Help us to praise you well. uh, We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.